With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Listening to Making a Difference About Domestic Violence and Abuse with host Shereen Rice on the CWR Talk Network. Good evening, this is Shereen Rice with Making a Difference About Domestic Violence. My goal for this show is to educate and help in the healing journey for those that are suffering from domestic abuse. I'm pre-recording tonight so you cannot call in i know that you, you sometimes can but tonight we can't so if you're listening tonight and would like to get in touch with me you can email me that's the second option at shereen cwr at gmail.com let me spell that out for you s-h-a-r-e-e-n-e-c-w-r at gmail.com i would love to hear from you i want i would like to remind everyone that our show is every thursday night 6 p.m pacific 7 mountain 8 central my show can also be heard on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Google Play if you subscribe to those services. If you'd like a direct link to those services, you can go to our CWR homepage um, at cwrtalknetwork.com and click on the logo for that service. If at any time you experience a trigger by this topic, please call the national hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE, 1-800-799-7233. We will go to a public service announcement. Be right back. Did you just look down at your phone? You did it again, didn't you? You know, you're flying down the road in a three-ton hunk of steel, and a text takes your eyes off the road for an average of five seconds. At 55 miles per hour, that's long enough to travel the length of a football field and cause some serious damage. Turn it off. Trust me. Whatever it is, you'll live. Learn more at StopTechStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Welcome back to Making a Difference About Domestic Violence and Abuse with your host, Shereen Rice, on the CWR Talk Network. Good evening, this is Shireen, and my the person I'm going to have on tonight is Grace Christofferson Chumley, and let me tell you a little bit about Grace. She has her bachelor's degree in early childhood education and elementary education, and she has her associates in family living. She has raised three children, two girls and a boy, and she enjoys her grandchildren a lot these days. I see him on Facebook, so I know. She started learning about depression since 1983 due to her husband's depression. And now her daughter has the genetic depression um, full-blown. She will be talking about the different types of depression, especially about genetic depression, and about suicide as well. And so I want to welcome Grace on. Hey, Gracie. (laughs) 
Hi, how you doing? <laughs> good. I hope that was good enough. I know it was short, but you know, you deserve a whole lot more of an intro than that. But it's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Just to share with my readers or listeners. Sorry, not readers. That would be my book, right? Uh, my listeners. Uh, Grace is actually my cousin, and uh, we do a lot together, and especially in the area in this area of domestic violence and and depression, anxiety, and so forth. So anyway, <clears throat> let's talk about uh, the different types of de- uh, depression. We were going to start with that, right? Okay. And and let me just say, to make sure everybody knows, I my knowledge has come from experience, not from medical. I, I have no degree in any of this, um, no expertise, if you want to put it that way, other than I've lived it, if that makes sense. Um, and that's an and expertise enough. from. <laughs> Yeah, I've learned from living through this, and not because I have depression. I'm actually a very um, easygoing, happy person, but it's in genetically in the family due to my husband now. Um, so, you know, the three there's the best way to describe it is there's like nine different types of depression, and within those nine, there's five or six subtypes. So, when you say depression, everybody's is going to look different, and I think that's why it's so difficult in the medical field to find a solution for someone's depression because it's going to be different because of their yeah. genetics, because of their, their chemical imbalances, whatever. It's going to be different. But the main kind that we see nowadays is your situational depression. Um, my dog died, and it's upsetting me. Um, my dog died when I was a senior in high school, and they thought I was on drugs. They called me into the office, and I'm like, no, my dog died. That's why my eyes are bloodshot, you know? So see, yeah. situations <laughs> like that, you know, it's like, no, I was on drugs. I promised my dog died. And they're like, really? You're a senior and you died, you know? <laughs> no. but, but situational depression is, yeah, is something that, a situation. Right. And I think that's what we're seeing in the schools with bullying. It's a situational thing. And I think it stems from students not having a knowledge of their self-worth. And so they're allowing right. other people to establish their self-worth when their self-worth is already established. That's a whole other topic we can get on in a minute. That's the one kind. The other is seasonal depression, um, seasonal defective, uh, affective disorder, where about 4 to 6% of the U.S. Pop, uh, population are estimated to have what's called SAD. It causes anxiety, irritability, daytime fatigue. You know, it's the, it's the, the your, you're living in Seattle kind of a thing. The other one is <laughs> okay. your I – mean, Or Oregon, let's say that. Either one of those. Or ones. Oregon, yeah. Or, or these places that have lots of cloudy, overcast-type days. And Rain, some people yeah. don't do well with that. Right. But then there's, like, the depression that is most common. It's kind of a – it's titled atypical depression. I don't know why. Often considered a subtype of major depression, are, are, and, and it's, it's the most common kind, two to three – times more common in women than men, and it can cause oversleeping, overeating, weight gain, irritability. Um, normally, talk therapy can work well with it sometimes. Um, but what my husband had was a clinical, which means it's key, it reoccurs. It was also passed down. Um, he was adopted by an aunt and uncle. So if you go back to his biological mother, she also had this. And back in the 50s, not knowing what to do, they locked her up kind of in an insane asylum type thing or different kinds of therapy like that, not knowing how to deal with it. And so my husband was raised actually by his aunt. And he knew his whole life something was wrong, 
I mean, when he was younger, he knew something was wrong, but he didn't know what it was. And I can tell you that within the first week of our marriage, I saw things I'd never seen before while we dated for two years that were very huge keys to me, but I did not have the tools to recognize it. I just knew something was wrong, if that makes sense. Right, right. Um, I knew my daughter inherited it by the time she was 12. And she has the same as my husband. So it's, it's, it is, um, I like to describe it this way. If somebody has diabetes, type 1, they cannot function without insulin being given to them. And when you have a chemical imbalance that doesn't let you produce serotonin or other things, you need to take medicine to help produce that. There's nothing to be ashamed of. It's a malfunction in your body. But because it's a depression, it makes people be ashamed of it or they think I'm not good enough or, or I'm not, I can't do what I'm supposed to do or whatever. And, right. and that's, the, that's the thing that, that my daughter inherited. And my other two children have different aspects. I have a daughter who has some high anxiety issues, which is a subtype that comes from, um, that can come out of somebody who has um, genetic depression. So one daughter inherited the, the high anxiety, and I have a son who has learned that he purposely will not put depressing things around him. Music, if it's depressing, it's out. Or if he's in high-stress situations, he has to go for a walk. He has to bring that down. So there's something there, too. But those two children aren't medicated. They've learned to ways to deal with it, so I don't think it's as bad. I think they right. inherited more of my good genes. <laughs> yeah. um, but the one daughter... The one daughter did inherit my husband's genes, and and it's been a battle for her her whole life. Um, Her mantra is, don't say there's light at the end of the tunnel. Be the light in the tunnel. That's That's what she needs. She needs you to be there when she's in her darkest moments, not when she's coming out of it. And so what I had to learn as a spouse and a mother of, of people who suffer from depression is, when is my spouse talking to me and when is it the depression talking to me? When is my child talking to me or when is it the depression I'm hearing? Because right. I re- will react very differently to those two things. Does that make right. sense? Yeah. Um, and that took years and years and I still didn't do very well with it. Um, but, you know, uh, there are things like, um, you know, when my husband, when I'd walk up in the bedroom and he'd be standing there staring at his feet, this is how I can tell the difference. Um, when someone has situational depression or seasonal depression, you can tell them a joke and they'll laugh at it, but they're still sad and have this depression, right? But they can get a joke. My husband would stand there looking at his feet, and if you said something to them, it was like he was hollow inside. And he'd look at you like, I don't understand what you're saying. I don't, I don't get this. And normally he would laugh at jokes. So I could tell when he was out of it because he couldn't comprehend what I was saying. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I would say, you know, I would say things like, um, have you eaten? I, I don't I don't know. I don't remember. Have you done this? I, I don't know. You know, have you, have you gone to the bathroom? I don't remember. And so my first response was to help them by saying things like, go for a walk, you need to get out, you know, or you need to do this, or you need to do that. And that doesn't help them in that type of a situation with that type of depression. Um, you know, don't say things like, 
well, you really don't have it that bad. Somebody has it worse, or yeah. you can count your blessings. Those kinds of things don't help with somebody who has a genetic chemical imbalance in them. It doesn't help. Um, you know, what can I do to help? Or I'm going for a walk. Would you like to come with me? Or can you tell me about one of your favorite vacations or your favorite things? Try and get them to talk about positive things without saying, oh, you're depressed. Or, right. oh, you really don't have it that bad. Those kinds of things don't help these people at all. Um, right. One of the things that was the biggest pet peeve of my daughters is people would say, oh, if you're depressed, go serve someone. That's fine if you have situational depression. That is not fine if you have a chemical imbalance. That just makes you feel worse. So right. that's the thing is everybody's depression is so different. We can't group them into one type of thing. And we can't give them all the same solution. So finding the solution that works best for your loved one is not easy. It's, right. It's a and, trial and error. It's, and yeah. didn't, didn't you tell me that um, genetic depression, that chemicals, uh, that medications are, are useless? Um, I didn't say useless, <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's what I call a crapshoot. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> because they have to try things until they find one that works. And what happened with my husband is it would work for seven, eight years, and then it would stop working as well. And they'd have to try and find something else. And so they can't say, oh, you need Prozac. Everybody needs Prozac because it's not going to work for some people. Right. Or everybody needs this. Uh, and then it changes. If is. You know, especially with the women, with my daughter, if she has hormonal changes, she can have changes in what her depression needs. And it's, it's hard. And the hardest time is during those periods of change where they can't feel, nor- they don't feel normal and things aren't working yet. You know what I mean? It's, it's like they feel so lost and, and they will often describe it as in a dark place. I don't want to go back to that dark place. But yet when medicines change and they don't work, that's what happens. And it's it's really hard for them, if that makes sense. Right, right. And I've also heard it described as um, being in a hole and kind of looking up and having to pretend to act normal and that type of thing. Yeah. And for my daughter, it's very different for women. They're a little bit more open about it, um, uh, you know, she will say that she, I will admit, she actually overdosed on sleeping pills one time. She did not want to die. She just wanted help and didn't know how to ask for it. Right. Um, and that's, and that's, what I heard. that's interesting. Yeah. And, and that's the usual thing. Now, with my husband's case, it was very different. Um, he did leave a five-page letter, and he totally did intend to take his life, um, which he did. He succeeded in 2008 um, in, in dying by suicide. Um, it was his first real attempt, although he'd had other times where I'd hospitalized him for suicide thoughts. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so I knew, and I knew exactly how he would do it because he told me. And what he used, I couldn't take away. He suffered from very severe depression. They had him on lithium. They had him on Prozac, both at the same time. So he took all of that, plus he was a type 1 diabetic. So he took all of that. So he overdosed on everything he had, um, which was exactly what I knew he would do because he told me, and I couldn't take away those medications because he needed them to live. Right. 
So that was really hard, um, knowing that, you know, and and it caught me off guard this that time. That I wasn't expecting it. He seemed to be okay, and I wasn't there to help. So, you know, that's the the problem with it. It leaves, it can leave guilt feelings on the people that are left behind. And I chose not to take on that guilt for his choice. Right. So yeah. But but I am going to help my daughter any way I can. <laughs> um, and you know, let me let me go back to this for a second. What I'm seeing, and this is totally from my perspective. This isn't a medical. This isn't. I don't know if it's been even written about. But with illness in older people, um, they lose hope. They they know that this is getting the best of them. They lose hope. They feel others will be better off because of real tangible things like the medical bills are taking care of them. And they feel like if they were to take their lives, it would be better for everybody around them because of those right. medical bills, because of the, 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 their imposing you know, trials on their loved ones. What yeah. you've seen is with this epidemic of teenage suicides, a lot of it's caused situationally whether it's by their self-worth is missing, they're being bullied, those kinds of things. That is a very scary trend. Um, they, you know, they feel like life isn't worth living and the world would be better off without them because they don't offer anything good because they've been told they're no good. Or they feel like if they take their life, maybe it will guilt the person who is bullying them. I don't, you know, I don't know. I haven't been in the minds of youth, but th- those are the things I hear from the youth. Um, kind of backfires a bit when they're thinking it'll hurt the bully because it usually doesn't. It just hurts the family. Um, but that's a really tragic thing that we have so many youth out there feeling that they're not worth, life isn't worth living. And what they just came out with, which is absolutely fascinating to me, is Utah just did a study, if I can find it real quick, Utah researchers identified differences in brains of youth with depression and past suicide attempts. Mm-hmm. So we know that they're finding a difference in the brains of youth who are subjected to pornography. Right. But now they're finding that the brains are different with youth with depression and have had past suicide attempts. And I'm going to just throw this out there because this is one of the things I think is one of the worst is I wonder how much of their computer time on games that are worthless are altering their brains to have that kind of effect. Does that make sense? Yeah, or has an influence in the depression. Yeah. They say that, that um, and I, I wish I could remember the person. I was like, well, I can't look on my phone. Um, there's now, a guy that's here in Utah that goes around teaching this, and he says that um, suicide idolization goes up. I think it was 70% when you're on your phone or any kind of electronics gaming for more than, I think it's two hours, which is tragic because our kids are on there a lot more than that. Yeah. And mine would be some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let me ask you this. Um, let's talk about depression of a loved one. 
and domestic violence. Did you ever experience any type of a domestic violence and how was it perpetrated if so? Um, that, that usually you do. In my case, um, there was no physical domestic violence. When my husband would get angry, he would usually remove himself from okay. the situation. Um, but there was verbal abuse. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and sometimes that verbal abuse can be very demeaning and harder almost. Well, not all. Yeah. It, it, I mean, physical abuse is hard too. Psychological abuse is far worse than psychological physical. Psychological abuse can be, yeah. And so there would be things like, um, and he would say things like, I mean, this is the funny one that I just laughed at. I walked downstairs one time in a dress and he said, you're wearing that? And I said, what's wrong with this? And he says, that's not a church color. Oh. And I was wearing a purple dress, and I thought, we have colors at church now? And I just laughed it off, okay? <laughs> yeah. But that, that's the kind of thing they would say to you is just things that made no sense, no sense. whatsoever. Right. But, but then he would get into, um, because, and, and I, I know this is a family show probably, but I have to be specific here somewhat, um, because of the lack of intimacy. When someone has um, depression, the meds can often – uh, destroy their their sex drive, especially if you're also suffering from type one diabetes, which my husband was, and that came at the age of forty. He did not have the diabetes first; he had the depression first. The diabetes came at the age of forty, which is really yeah. an interesting thing. Um, yeah. But he would say things because he personally couldn't perform, and he felt guilty. He would say things like to me, "I don't like touching a fat body." which can really destroy you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, mentally, it can really mess with you. So yeah. I, that's why I said I had to learn, is this the disease talking or is this Mike talking? Yeah. Because Mike wouldn't say that. The disease would say that. Took me yeah. years to figure that out and not take those things so personally, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I did not see the physical abuse as much as maybe some of the, the um mental abuse, but having said that, a lot of people do see the physical abuse because when you're not able to control yourself, you, you know, you, you, it comes out in different ways. When my husband would be coming out of a depression, he would go into these deep depressions and then come out of them about, you know, once a year he'd have a minor, I, I say minor, but they were major, depression, and about every five or six years he'd have a huge one where I'd have to hospitalize him. Yeah. Um, and that got closer and closer and closer as he got older. Those time periods changed. But um, there would be times when um, when he was coming out of the depression where he realized he was out of control. He had been out of control. So he became an absolute control freak and tried to micromanage our family. And we'd be like, back off, back off, back off. <laughs> you know, it just, it was really hard. And for me, I'm sure that 70% of the time I handled things incorrectly. You know, I can look back and say, oh, my goodness, what was I thinking? I should have done this. I should have been more, you know, compassionate. I should have been, uh, you know, more patient. But you can't live in the what ifs and if I'd only. Right. You can't live there. I, I, I can't go back to that. So now I just try to do the best I can at helping others and including my daughter. Yeah. So, yeah. 
So there's things we can do, though, that help make it better. You know, we can offer encouragement. We can listen without judging. And I think that's the key for men. Men won't tell people they have depression because they feel like they're less of a man and they'll be judged for it. But we can listen and not judge. Right. And what are you mentioned a few, but what are things you can say to people with depression? Because I know a lot of times we say the wrong thing. <laughs> um, you can say things like, you know, what was your favorite part of this activity you did? Or um, I'm on my way to go do something. Can I pick you up and take you with me? Uh, you know, make them feel a part of your life so they don't feel because they will they will withdraw and seclude themselves. Um, uh, you know, I'm feeling pretty bummed the other day and I came across something that helped me. Can I tell you about it? You know, that, that might be okay. Or say, um, uh, do you want to go get an ice cream? Do you want to go for a walk? And, st- and listen to them instead of, I think what we tend to do is try and tell them all our problems so that they can feel like, oh, yours aren't that bad. And that's, that's not what they need to hear. They need to know right. that they're loved. They need to hear that, that you care. And, you know, and so I, I, with my daughter, I have just learned to listen and not try not to say things like, oh, it'll get better. Right. Because you know, they don't feel like it's going to get better. <laughs> or right. um, let me know if there's something I can do to help, and then you walk away. You know, we, we tend to do that in our culture. Oh, if right. you need something, if you need casserole, if you need something, let me know. Well, they're not willing to ask a lot of times because they're still trying to hide it sometimes, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, um, you so can, you can you offer, you know, hey, just offer. Yeah, just yeah, offer okay. to, to, you know, just offer to help or offer to listen. And we need to truly learn to listen. That's a hard in our culture. We have lost the yeah. skill of listening. Um, we want to tell them about ourselves. We want to tell them about our experience. We want to, you know, and, and that doesn't always work. Sometimes they just want to be heard. They just want to know that they can have somewhat of a normal life and move forward. Yeah. And how does your daughter deal with it every day? Um, you know, one of the things that she did, and, and I was really surprised by this, she actually doesn't talk about it a lot, but somebody asked her to talk about it at an event, and she did. And she, she wrote it down um, because she said she would never remember it, and so she wrote it down. And she actually gave me the letter that she wrote. And it, it's really interesting Um but she said in there, um, oh, I lost it. I have my husband's letter, not her letter. She said in there that um, that uh, she made a list when she was feeling good. She made a list of 10 things that she knows that help her to feel better. One of them is pumpkin scones and a Starbucks coffee. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, if that, if that makes you feel better. And so she will often, when she's feeling kind of blah, she'll go get her Starbucks pumpkin scone and a coffee. Or for her, she lives on the Oregon coast, she'll go to the beach. Just sitting and looking at the beach helps her. So she's written down 10 things that she knows can help her. So when she starts to feel like she's going down and losing control, she pulls it out and tries to do something from that list. Does or, that you know, sense? that would be actually a good list for her friends to have, too, if they can see that's happening to her. They could say, True. hey, I'm going to go get you a Starbucks pumpkin scone. Whatever. I know. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. She could share that. I never even thought about that. But she could share it with her friends so they can see that. 
um, that, that that can help. Um, and now, so why does she live in that, Oregon when does. it has a lot of darkness and rain and cloudiness? Well, and... <laughs> you know, because situational depression doesn't bother her. Oh, yeah. That's, that's not right. what she has. See, and that's that's interesting because see, we lived in Seattle. My husband, the the weather didn't bother him either because it wasn't situational; it was chemical. Right. And a lot of a lot of the environment around you has a lot to do, and that's where the the bullying comes in with people who are you know youth especially. But your environment, you know, even if it's chemically in you, your environment can change a lot of things. My yeah. daughter could not live where I live. Um, I don't know if it's the higher altitude. They're finding that's a huge thing. I don't know. There's look up depression and high altitude sometime. <laughs> that's an interesting study they're doing. But she needed to live down by the water on the coast, and that so environment can play effect have an effect even in um, even in your your genetic depression. Um, just where you're at in life, what you're doing, can make a difference. But it definitely has a difference in situational depression. Yeah, you know, I I'm going to read to you what one what my husband left. He left a five page letter, and I'm going to I'm going to read this to you because this kind of explains how they feel. And there's two different parts here. It says, okay, in the last five in the last five weeks, I've experienced the beginning of relief and some hope for the future, only to have both ripped away from me for no identifiable reason. This has happened three times in the past five weeks, and I am broken. I have lost all hope that I can ever have normal, decent, reasonably healthy life and not inflict pain and suffering on those closest to me. The only peace I find comes when I consider taking my life. And then, it, and then he wrote at the very end, why has joy been so elusive? At times it seem, has seemed as though it's almost at my fingertips, and then it's viciously yanked away. That's how they feel. And I've never felt that. I've never felt that hopeless, but that's how they feel. And so I think giving them hope um, and love is is really key. Yeah. And recognizing it. With, with situational depression in our youth, it's hard to recognize. It's hard to see. Um, you know, usually they they lose their their enthusiasm for school or they you know, um they are actively involved in something and then suddenly it changes. Um or they start excluding themselves and not mixing with groups of people, things like that. You just have to watch for it and just really help them understand that their worth isn't we, – we place, we place our worth on our um, – what's the word I'm looking for? We place our worth on our achievements, and that's not right. where worth comes from. Our, our worth is established. We are wonderful human beings. That is established. Don't don't let somebody say to you, oh, that was stupid. You did a stupid thing, or I didn't like this about you. That's their problem, not yours. Don't take it on. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's yeah. their problem. They have a problem with you, not you. Don't take right. on other people's problems. And that's what I try and tell youth all the time. Don't take on their issues. You know, we have right. enough of our own. Don't take theirs on. That's their problem. Don't, don't take it with you. Um, no. But, yeah, we had – go ahead. No, that's I was I was agreeing with you. I agree with that. We we often sometimes do take on what other people are going through, and I I don't know why the empathy is important, but sometimes I think it'd be better if we just tried to use something from their cheer up list. So maybe we should all make a cheer up list. 
you know, this makes me happy yeah. and give it to our friends. Yeah. Yeah. Mine would be and, chocolate, and, just so anyone out there who wants to know. <laughs> <laughs> and diamonds Halloween also. Chocolate and diamonds. Of my, car. Yeah. <laughs> my Halloween candy's locked in the trunk of the car, so I wouldn't get to it, right? Every time I drive, I'd get some out. <laughs> Give me the chocolate. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. <laughs> oh. now, now, there are some mis mis and misunderstandings about depression. And when um, Robin Williams took his life, Forbes came out with a list of um, five common myths about depression. And it said depression is synonymous with sadness. And that's not always the case. Nope. Um, it's not necessarily synonymous. Syno- I can't even say that. Synonymous with Syn- sadness. It also said that they also said another misnomer is depression is a sign of mental weakness. It's a... M- you can't control it. It's your body is missing serotonin or some of these other things that that help you to be happy. It's not something that it's it's not a weakness. It's just right. the same thing as if your body can't produce insulin, like I said earlier. Um, right. Depression is always situational. That is not true. Um, depression is not always situational. Um, right. And depression symptoms are all in your head. That you know, it's all in your head. Have you ever heard somebody say that to you? Oh, it's just all in your head. Get over it. Yeah, just fix that. It's not. I know. Yeah, and and the other one is, if you're diagnosed with depression, you'll be on antidepressants for the rest of your life. That's not necessarily true. My husband's case and my daughter's case, that is true. But I always tell my daughter that they're making medical breakthroughs constantly. Just keep having hope and pray that they will come up with something better. Well, and let me share, when my dad was dying, I went on depression meds because that was situational, right? And um, they said, well, within a month, you'll start feeling better, but you need to stay on it for a year, so it'll change the chemical in your body, so you'll never be depressed again, which I doubt that's the case. But I did stay on it for almost a year. I was on, I have to tell you, I was on something way too strong to the effect that nothing mattered to me. I'd spend money like crazy. Nothing mattered to me. So I went to my doctor and I said, yeah, okay, so this is a little on the much side because absolutely nothing matters to me. <laughs> <laughs> so so they lowered the dose, but that was nice of them. But, um, yeah. yeah. And, and, see, that's and why I say it's kind of a crapshoot. They don't know they're guessing. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But I'm going to say, though I've been in and out of depression since then but it's it's smaller bouts and i've never had to go on medications for it um so i'm not going to say it's never going to happen again because i don't think they know that (laughs) yeah well that's what you know we all have times of depression you know we all have times where we're sad or we go through things because that's that's this this life is hard yeah And, and so you know um, we have moments where it's hard to cope, and so if we have skills that we're taught, then we know how to that that, that it isn't the end that that'll get it will get better. You know, we just have to have those kinds of skills. Yeah, there's some really good warning signs to watch for youth, though, and I want I wanted to go over those really quick. Um, okay, youth youth will talk about ways to to kill themselves or dying. They'll talk about feeling trapped or in pain, um, maybe talking about being a burden to others. They will 
probably are often use alcohol or drugs sometimes to get rid of pain. They give away yeah. their personal items for no reason. They don't, you know, they know their their life's not worth living. I'm going to give you all my personal stuff and give it away. Yeah. Um, acting anxious, agitated, behaving reckless, recklessly, um, withdrawing and isolating themselves, slowly rage or talking about seeking revenge, um, displaying extreme mood swings. Those are the kinds of things you need to watch for in youth. And yeah. anyone, but in youth especially, watch for those um, because despite everybody's best efforts, not all suicides can be prevented. But if we start paying more attention to those things, we could probably really help. Right. Right. And you know what? That's all we really want to do is to help those in need. Um, now, let me ask you a question. I don't really like that they use depression as a mental health issue, but it is kind of a mental health issue, but it's not mental illness per se. What are your thoughts? Um, hmm, that's an interesting one. Um, it is mental. It is, I mean, it is a part of your brain functioning. Um, the way that we handle mental illness, I don't think is always the best. Um, you know, here, here are some of my problems with the men, the, the medical field in this, this one, um, because of the HIPAA rules, Mm -hmm. I I wasn't, if my husband, who knew how to work the system, went to a new doctor, I couldn't have access to information. And I think when it comes to mental illness, where somebody's life is could possibly at risk, those that are closest in their network need to be involved in it. Yeah. And I was not involved. They, I would be excluded, whether it was my husband doing it or the medical field. I'm not sure sometimes. I think it's both. But I yeah. think in situations like this, they need to have a mentor with them at the doctor because they only hear certain things anyway. They will only hear the worst if, they're in a men- if their mental state is down. Right. Um, and that happened in my husband's situation, um, and the 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 person that saw him last, the medical person that saw him last, um, said that they they knew he was in that bad of a state, and that what he was considering and how he was what he was going to do. So they tried to give him safety nets, but they did not call me or anyone else close to him to watch. That's really and upsetting that, to me. Very sad. That's well, very sad. And could they not have uh, been? Uh, saved him possibly if um, you, you know you had known um, possibly I think so uh, but here again how many times can I save him right I'd hospitalized him several times I, I knew this right. was going to be the outcome at some point I just felt it um, yeah. I can only save him so much but right. at the same time the medical field to say that the HIPAA law was what what helped kept them from calling me? I think that's bogus. In a situation of life and death, I don't think that should be held 
as a as a standard is is oh, well. I would think that would be a, an ethical violation, actually. I yeah, I don't. I don't, I don't know, care what I, the HIPAA law is. I would think that'd be an ethical violation. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, they basically told me they knew that that's how bad he was, and I'm like, and your safety nets were to. To, to do what? What were these safety nets? Because they didn't work. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. Um, lastly, Grace, um, I I love your book. Um, I recommend it all the time. Um, well, t- tell us a little bit about it. Well, um, it needs updated. There's a lot of spelling errors. I had apparently a really bad editor, and I didn't know that at the time. No. <laughs> So I apologize for my spelling, but I can't spell, and it's in there. Um, but Were you it, your own editor, girlfriend? <laughs> it was not written as a book to publish. It was a blog, and that was my therapy. I did not yeah. need to go talk to a therapist because I was fine at 2.30 in the afternoon. It yeah. was 1 or 2 in the morning that I needed to, to just vent, and, yeah. and so I wrote. And I wrote, and so it's written as a blog. And I had my friends encourage me to publish it, and so I did. And it, it's the first five or six chapters, especially if you knew my husband, are probably very hard because um, I would not change a thing about our marriage, but it was hell. If yeah. That makes sense. There were there weren't a lot of good years. Um, it was hard. I wouldn't change it, but it was hard. And I came to a point where I I just had had it, and I didn't know what to do, and. And I had to start thinking about my own mental health and making sure I was okay so that I could be a better mom and, and a better support. And when I did right. that, life became easier for me to handle. But the first five chapters are more about his suicide and, and our marriage. And then the rest of it is the year or two after and the crazy things that happen and how we, you know, how we survived the craziness. And um, it, 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 I've been told that it it strikes a chord with people because it's very natural and very um, real. Yeah, you know, I I, I tell the truth. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I just talk because it's I wasn't a problem writing in our it family. for people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I wasn't writing it for people. I was just writing it, and to find that people were reading my blog was like, why are you reading this? It's so weird, you know. But it just worked. And yeah. um, and I've had a lot of people that have asked me, oh, should I give it to my friend who's depressed? And I'm I'm like, well, no. Um, make sure, you know, if you if you're suicidal, no, I wouldn't read it because it. it well, I don't know. It depends on your situation. All right. I wrote it more as a survivor and the trials that we go through for after surviving because one of the things I've said is. Suicide doesn't end your problems; it puts them on somebody else. Yeah, and my the loss of my husband just put so many more problems on us, so many more issues. I had uh, issues that I just were so hard. Um, you know, one of them that's a little bit funny, and I'm almost embarrassed to tell tell it, but it's the one in the in the book that is the most people just say, "I'm so glad you put that in there," and I'm thinking, "Oh my gosh, it's so embarrassing." is when I um, when we were at the house, 
where my husband took his life. We ha- we were in the process of moving. So he was at the old house. We were at the new house. So we went back to the old house, and we were cleaning it up, taking care of things. And we had been there all day. And it's like 1130 at night, and we were staying at a friend's house about a mile away. And I opened his briefcase, and in it I found a letter I'd written to him probably 10 years earlier about how frustrated and angry I was. He had been tearing that letter around. Not one of the notes of, I love you, have a great day, those kinds of things, none of those were anywhere. But the letter, the one time I wrote a negative letter, he packed it around for 10 years and reread it and reread it and reread it. Wow. And I had that, I had that feeling of, I helped push him over the edge. And I bolted from the house. And I just started running. And I was running towards the house I was going to stay at, but I just started running. And then I realized I had nothing. I had no shoes on. I had my phone in my pocket, but I, had no, I didn't have my purse. I had nothing. And I didn't tell my son that I had left the house. So I called my daughter, and I said, I'm on my way to the house. I'm in an area that's dark. Um, if, if I don't make it in 10 minutes, call the police. <laughs> I said, call Jeffrey. Call, call call your brother and tell him that I ran and bolted out of the house that I'm okay. And she's like, okay, Mom. So I, I just ran, and I ran, and I ran. And I get to the house, and I'm not a runner. I'm not a runner. I get to the house, and my daughter opens the door, and she just looks at me horrified. And she goes, Mom, what happened? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Because of the emotion and the state of mind I was in, I lost control of everything. And I had no idea, and I had wet my pants. I was soaked. Oh, no. And that's embarrassing. That's embarrassing, but that's real. That's what happens when you get so um, caught up in the emotions of something right. that you can't even control what's happening. Right. And that that was the kind of things that would happen. Um, that only happened once, thank goodness. But because I had no control sometimes over the emotions, I would walk into a, a the school and the teachers would say, how are you doing today? And I'd say, I'm fine. And then I'd just break into hysterical tears, you know, crying. And, and so the effects that the whole thing had on us was very hard to get through. And that's what the book talks a lot about is how we survived after the, after, the aftermath of survival for us as a family, making sure my kids were okay, making sure that they had a good foundation, got good medical care if they needed it. You know, my daughter's anxiety plummeted after my husband died the youngest daughter you know the one that doesn't have the depression Um, her anxiety through high school was horrible and not a lot of people knew about that and it was it was you know whatever uh, it was one of those things where you walk out of a class your teachers are not to do anything and I I told the teachers you don't do anything she walks out she's a straight A student her grades start to fall then I'll think differently but she's a straight-A student. She walks out of class. You don't do anything. You don't discipline her. You don't do anything because she's calling me. I'm going to be there with my car. She gets in the car. She has her meltdown. She gets herself together, and she goes back in. And see, that's wow. what I needed to do was support my family yeah. and let them grieve and process the way they best could. And that, that's what the book's about. It's about those hard times and getting over it, getting through right. it, getting through it. You never get over it, but you get through it. So, yes. And yeah. Yeah. So your the name of your book is Grace Under Pressure, right? Yep. Grace Under Pressure: Smiling Through Adversity. 
And you know what? I really think that you hit something on the nail on the head there, and not just for what you were going through, but also domestic violence victims. They they don't need someone went to make an appointment for. They need someone now, whenever yeah. that is yeah. now. And yeah. um, I would I had a therapist and I said I need to talk to someone now, and he wouldn't get back to me for several days. And I'm like, okay, well now I know I'm feeling fine. But you know, so they need their own network of people, not a therapist, not a talk therapist, most likely because they're never available, and you know they only have certain <laughs> appointed times. But they need someone to talk to right now. I have a friend in Australia, and she goes, can you talk right now? And I'll be, yeah, just hold on one second, and we can talk right now. And we uh, Facebook, uh, you know, video Facebook. And we yeah, talk right, right now, yeah. you know, because that's when they need it, right now. And um, so I think you hit that nail on the head real well, and that's just how it is. Just you, you don't it, – it's not making an appointment in two weeks. You're going to talk about something that you need to discuss right now. Yeah. And there's so many helps out there. There's the National Suicide Prevention Line. There's the um, NAMI. There is uh, uh, Bring Change to Mind. You know, there's a lot of groups out there that you can get involved in that can help. um, You know, and I love Bring Change to Mind because what they're trying to do is change our minds about mental illness. Yeah. You know, it's It's called Bring Change to Mind. Bring change to mind. Yeah, I can send you links to all those. Okay. There's some really good ones. They've um, Glenn Close has done some really phenomenal um, public announcements, service announcements with Bring Change to Mind. Okay. All right. Well, girlfriend, I'm so grateful to you for coming on today and talking about this. And um, yeah, and don't forget, you're going to be you and your daughter are going to be speaking at my conference next year too, right? Yes. <laughs> I Don't forget, so. set me aside. Do so. not take a cruise. You're always on a cruise I've, when I need you. <laughs> I, I have it on my calendar this year. Yay! <laughs> I count. Yep. I have it on my calendar. <laughs> okay. I, well, I love you. In a couple of weeks, yeah, I'm speaking know, in a couple where? weeks on, on adversity um, in Lehigh, Utah, um, at a singles conference uh, or a singles fireside or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> But it's it's smile it's not smiling through adversity. It's just you know finding your way through adversities. Um, right. Yeah, and so I, yeah, it's been a it's been a real fun run, fun fun. Uh, not fun. I shouldn't say that. It's been helpful <laughs> for me to be able to help other people. Yeah, and you know what? That's what I tell everyone. If um, you have experience in something, reach out to others to find them. They could use your help. Yeah. Yep. You're not in this alone. If we all no. help each other, it's, it makes the world a better place. It absolutely does. Well, uh, you're going to have to tell me when it is. I'm going to try to make it up for your fireside. Okay. All right. All right, girlfriend. I love you. Okay, love you too. All righty. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, I just want to thank Grace for coming on tonight and telling us her story. Um, I think I told you she's my cousin, and uh, she's been through a lot. But she's a very strong woman. I think it doesn't, sometimes we're not so strong when we go through things like that. And um, it's a very sensitive subject for her, depression and suicide, as it is for all of us, I would say. Anyone probably listening to this right now. And so um, if you have any questions or comments, please email me at shereencwr at gmail.com. Have a good night. Bye-bye.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.